0: Have you guys ever modeled something after someone else? Like a hairstyle or an outfit or something like that? Yeah? When I was in middle school, these two people came into my life and they completely ruined it. Their names were uh, Justin Bieber (laughs) and uh, the Jonas Brothers. Yeah, that's like vintage 2008. You see, not only did these guys steal every girl that I wanted to talk to, that I liked, that I wanted them to like me, I mean, these girls had pencils and folders and screensavers of these guys' faces on it. They wouldn't even look at me. But these guys also made every guy, including yours truly, feel like they needed to have long, beautiful hair that they could just whip around, you know? Which is a problem for a guy like me whose hair is like an iron brush, whose hair only grows up. It doesn't grow out. And so when I tried to model my hair after these guys, it didn't look like that. It looked like this. Air Apostle 1987, <laughs> baby, till I die. <laughs> oh, man. When I, when I tried to move my hair, it would just stick. It wouldn't go anywhere. It would just stay exactly where it was. As you can see, I tried to model my hair after Justin Bieber and the Jonas Brothers, and it didn't work out for me. Now, I'm not alone in this, right? Like, we have all modeled our hair or an outfit or something else after someone, right? Someone that we wanted to be like. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, but it doesn't actually stop there. It doesn't stop with just like a hairstyle or an outfit. You see, we model our entire lives after other people. We model our entire lives after someone else that we're enthralled or we're captured by. We see their life and we think that's the one that we want to experience. The question isn't really if we model our life after someone else. It's more about who we model our life after. Most of the time, we end up uh, being captured by these high-profile men and women who lead like nations or corporations or churches and causes, and they tell us how to, to make money, how to win wars, how to sell products, how to lead people. But these people's lifestyles are rarely full of love and joy and peace, and they are almost always lived at a fast and hurried pace. And we're surprised when our lifestyles, modeled after these people, are rarely full of love and joy and peace and feel very hurried. Jesus offers us an alternative. Jesus lived life at one pace, slow. And Jesus lived life with one posture, patience. His life was full of love and joy and peace and it was void of any hurry. We spent the last two weeks kicking off this new series titled Slow, right? Last week, or sorry, two weeks ago, Torn introduced, kind of gave language to this feeling called hurry sickness. It's this disease or a feeling that we most, maybe all of us have where we just feel like we, there's not enough time. We constantly feel like we need to do things faster and faster and faster because there's not enough time in the day to do all the things that we want to do. And so when we're in the grocery, we change checkout lines three times to make sure that we're in the fastest one. When we're in the drive through lane, like we see the two lanes and we decide which one we're going to go in based on which one has the least amount of cars. And if you're like me, if they're the same amount of cars, you're looking at which one's going to take the least amount of time to order, Right. It's like, stay away from those SUVs, stay away from those minivans, okay? Like they're about to have seven Happy Meals ordered and you don't wanna be behind them, right? And we're in the drive-through lane most of the time because, well, we didn't have time to get to the grocery to eat food that's healthy for our bodies, it's healthy for our souls because we are sick. Like we are hurried. We have hurry sickness. And last week, we learned that that the solution to this problem of hurry sickness, the solution to our limitations isn't what we think it might be. It's not more time. It's not a spa day. It's not some form of escape. The solution to this hurry sickness is to adapt and adopt to the lifestyle of Jesus. Like Jesus said that his way is easy. His lifestyle is easy. So rather than some form of escape, Jesus offers us equipment. He invites us to take on his life, to live the way that he lived, full of joy and love and peace, at one pace, slow and with one posture, patience. I have up with me uh, this morning one of the oldest copies of Moby Dick ever produced. Here, I'm just kidding. It's just an old copy. I think it was written in like the 70s. It's not that old. Uh, someone uh, after first service messaged me and said, "If this was one of the original copies, it would be worth twenty-five thousand dollars, which is crazy." It's not, so it doesn't matter. Anyway, uh, this is Moby Dick. Anyone read Moby Dick? A couple of wow, not a lot, man. You guys should uh, you guys should go check out this book, Moby Dick. Uh, in the book, there's this uh, it's this novel, right? This classic American novel uh, where this a uh, sailor named Ishmael finds himself on this boat, this whaling boat with this crazy captain named Ahab who's obsessed with finding and killing this great white whale named Moby Dick, that's right. And in the book there's this one scene, there's this one scene where the the boat, the crew are they're stuck in a storm and their boat is being tossed around by the turbulent sea. And and the the crew, the sailors, the oarsmen, all of their response is uh, to panic. They begin to focus all of their energy on just doing something amidst the chaos, amidst this storm. And so they grab an oar, or they run around, they scream, they shout, they panic. They are understandably so in a state of hurry. But there's one man who doesn't panic. There's one man who doesn't run around He doesn't scream or shout. He is not hurried. He's the man holding the harpoon. And the harpooner is slow and poised, relaxed and patient. Melville writes at the end of this scene, he says this, to ensure the greatest efficiency in the dart, the harpooners of this world must start to their feet from out of idleness and not from out. toil. I think many of our lives feel like a boat being tossed around in a sea in a storm, right? But our sea, our storm is this modern digital world and the chaos that it brings with it. And for so many of us, our response has been like the crew, to fight out of toil, to grab an oar, so to speak, and fill our lives with work and shopping lists and unrealistic to-do lists to turn to these escapist behaviors, to ignore the pain and the exhaustion that we feel. And when that doesn't work, we try to just like entertain ourselves into spiritual oblivion, right? Like Netflix, shuffle, autoplay, keep it coming, keep it coming, keep it coming. But Jesus is like the, the man holding the harpoon. Like his way always starts out of idleness, relaxed, slow, and patient. Will you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8? verses 40 to 56 this morning. Luke, is. Uh, it's in the second half of your Bible. It's just, it's a- after the book of Matthew, after the book of Mark. It's this third book of the Bible uh, of the New Testament that kind of tells this life and the story of Jesus. And as you turn there, just something I wanna have on our minds as we jump into this narrative this morning. Jesus said that the greatest commandment in all of scripture was to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, your mind, and your strength. And then he said, the second one was was to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, Jesus' way of life, when we talk about Jesus' lifestyle, his way of life, it begins and ends with love. That's not all that there is, but it's definitely where it starts. Jesus' way of life begins and ends with love. And Jesus made one thing clear about love. In word and in deed, he made one thing clear. It was this, love is incompatible with hurry. Everybody say that with me. Love is incompatible with hurry. I caught you off guard, so let's try it again. Love is incompatible with hurry. Jesus described his kingdom of love as as a mustard seed or as leavened bread, things that take time to grow. When the apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthian church later on in the New Testament, he described love the first way he described it. Love is patient. You see, love takes time. Love is slow. Love is patient, which means that love and living in a state of hurry cannot coexist. You see, living in a state of hurry and trying to love others is like oil and water. They simply do not mix. Jesus made this clear. And so this hurry sickness, this hurry stuff that we're talking about, it's not just something that affects us individually, like this feeling that we don't like to have and we want to get rid of it. No, this hurry sickness is something that gets in the way of us living the life that Jesus wants for us, of loving God and loving others the way that he did, the way that we're going to read this morning. So if you'll follow along with me in Luke chapter 8, verses 40 to 56. We're going to read this whole uh, narrative this morning. It says this, Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. And then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, he's, he's headed that way now, the crowds almost crushed him. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she had been instantly healed. And then he said to her, Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Yet while Jesus was still speaking, someone came from the house of Jairus and said to the uh, synagogue leader, your daughter is dead. He said, don't bother the teacher. Don't bother Jesus anymore. But hearing this, Jesus said to Jairus, don't be afraid. Just believe and she will be healed. When he arrived at the house of Jairus, he did not let anyone go in him with him except Peter, John, and James, and the child's father and mother. Meanwhile, all the people were wailing and mourning for this this girl. Stop wailing, Jesus said. She is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, knowing that, that she was dead, but he took her by the hand and said, My child, get up. Her spirit returned and at once she stood up and then Jesus told them to give her something to eat. Her parents were astonished, but he ordered them not to tell anyone what had happened. I have a buddy who says, uh, when we go to the movies, when we're picking a movie or something, he'll be like, the longer the movie, he says like, you get your your money's worth more. So he'll be like, yeah, yeah, this movie is two and a half hours. So you get your money's worth, which like, doesn't make any sense to me at all. But that's kind of like what this story is like. You get your money's worth here. You got like two stories kind of packed into one this morning. There's like these two stories. There's these two characters, really, that honestly, in a lot of ways, couldn't be more opposite. First, you have Jairus. Jairus, it says that Jairus was the synagogue leader. He was the ruler of the synagogue, which means that Jairus was the dude who was in charge of selecting all the prayers and the scripture that was read and who read them. And he was in charge of who opened up the Torah and taught. Like Jairus was the dude in charge of temple worship. Jairus was a very important person. Jairus was deeply embedded and connected to Jewish religious and social life but he has this daughter. It says that it's his only daughter and she's 12 years old and she's dying. And, and Jairus is, is devastated. Jairus is desperate. It says he, he falls on his knees at Jesus' feet with, with what I can imagine is, is the, the only, the agonizing and the helpless feeling that only a parent can feel for their child. And he begs at Jesus' feet, Jesus come, And save her, Jesus, you're my only hope. And then we have a woman. A woman, she's not given a name, but it says that this woman has been bleeding. She's been hemorrhaging and and discharging blood for, for 12 years and this, this bleeding, this isn't just like a minor inconvenience. It's not like a preference thing uh, that she just wanted to get rid of. And, and the ladies in the room are like, oh, yeah, it's not just a preference thing. Yeah, it's just uh, not a minor inconvenience. You see, this woman, it, this bleeding would have affected her entire life. Aside from the inconvenience, aside from the preference of not wanting to deal with that. You see, there were, there were health regulations at this time. Certain things that just were, were cause for spread of infection. And so those people were asked not to be a part of certain things. And so this woman, this bleeding would have made her unclean, ceremonially unclean, unable to participate in temple worship, unable to gather at the synagogue. She was completely separated from Jewish religious and social life. And that's why it says in in another translation that she spent penny after penny trying to see doctor after doctor after doctor to try and figure out what is going on, to try and fix this, but nothing has worked. She's devastated, she's isolated, and she's hopeless. And these two characters, these two stories are, are, are brought together, they're woven together in this powerful moment in the gospel of Luke because Jesus is on his way to the daughter of Jairus to heal this dying 12-year-old girl. And on his way, the woman reaches out and touches the cloak of Jesus. And it says that she is immediately healed. And Jesus notices this, right? He notices this. And so as he's walking, he asks the question, who touched me? And you can only imagine the frustration or the confusion that Jairus must have been feeling in that moment. His daughter is dying. She's 12 years old. She's dying. And the only hope to save her is walking in a crowd that it says is pressing in all around him. So people are having to clear the way just for Jesus to take step after step. And in the middle of that, Jesus stops to ask a question, who touched me? You even wonder if if Peter is feeling Jairus' frustration because he says to Jesus like, Master, the crowds are pressing in all around you. In other words, Peter's like, Jesus, you've got to be kidding right now. But I want us to stop and to notice something. You've probably picked up on it. Notice that Jesus, on his way to heal a dying 12 year old girl, wasn't running ragged. He wasn't on the back of a donkey just like trying to change lanes and get there as fast as he possibly could, right? I don't know if this is how you'd ride a donkey, I have no idea. (laughs) He wasn't trying to change lanes. He he wasn't trying to cram as many things into as little time as possible. He doesn't seem irritable. He doesn't seem emotionally numb. Jesus is not in a state of hurry. No, instead, Jesus is deeply present. He's patient and he's available to love. And I think this is confusing for us. This doesn't make sense. One, one of the most prominent New Testament scholars, his name is Daryl Bach, he says this about this moment. He says that it is eyebrow raising that for Jesus, the critical life death situation of Jairus' daughter must wait for a healing and a testimony that could have been done under less testing circumstances. Basically, Bach saying like, really, Jesus? Like, why now? Like, why would Jesus stop on the way to heal a dying daughter of a Jewish synagogue ruler, somebody who's at the top of Jewish religious and social life, why would he stop to heal that, the daughter of that person to restore and renew the life of a woman who had been completely separated from that? I'll tell you why. Because love is always patient. Love is always slow. Love is always patient. Love is always slow. Patient love sees each moment as jam-packed full of potential and meaning and significance. Patient love is willing to stay wherever it is as long as it needs to. Patient love enters into the thick of life to help shoulder the suffering that's going on around it and sometimes to suffer with. Patient love abides in each particular moment, seeing each moment as filled with the grace of God. Jesus was full of patient love. It was Jesus' patient love that allowed him to see a woman who had been completely isolated, who was desperate, in need of restoration, and in need of healing, even on his way to heal a dying daughter of the synagogue ruler, I think this sort of patience, this patient love is hard for us today. It's hard for us to imagine. It's even harder for us to live out. In fact, there's a historian, a social philosopher who, who claims this. Uh, he claimed that the greatest temptation of our time is impatience in its full original meaning. Refusal to wait, to undergo, to suffer with. We seem unwilling to pay the price of living with our fellow humans in creative and profound relationships. Love doesn't rush past hard places. Love enables us to listen when we are tempted to react. Love moves us to seek understanding when we feel misunderstood. Love is patient. Jesus' way of love is patient. Patient. And I think some of us hear that this morning and we say, yeah, yeah, this is so great. This is so great. I want to get rid of this hurry. I want to live the way that Jesus lived. The way of Jesus is love and love is patient, but I'm on 18 credit hours and I'm an RA and it's finals week. Or we say, yeah, 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 I I want to get rid of this hurry stuff. I want to live the way that Jesus lived and the way of Jesus is love and love is patient, but... My spouse just got a new job and they're traveling a lot and we just bought a new house and we just we just got a new dog. We got a lot going on right now. We say, "Yeah, yeah, the way of Jesus is love and love is patient," but I got 4 kids in 6 sports and I'm just trying to get them through school and not let them kill each other. This week I found myself saying, "Yeah, the way of Jesus is love and love is patient," but I got a sermon to write. I got a foster care orientation going on, and I got a big idea assembly at Kinner and I got Connect 30 coming on. I'm like, Jesus, I got a lot going on right now. I don't know about you, but I oftentimes don't feel patient. Like, a lot of times I feel more gyrus than I do Jesus. Like, waiting to get to the next thing, confused why God's asking me to do this or why God's doing that. I don't see each moment as packed full of potential and meaning and significance. No, I see each moment as kind of like useless and empty. I feel restless, ready to get on to the, to the next thing, to get out of the here and now as quickly as possible and to ignore anyone who's in my way to get to the next thing. And as easy as it is to say those things, as valid as it is to feel those ways, I am confronted this morning, we are confronted this morning with the life of Jesus. Who on his way to heal the daughter of a synagogue ruler stopped to restore and to heal a bleeding woman who had been separated from the very life that this synagogue ruler was at the top of. In other words, if you're gonna hear anything this morning, hear this. Nothing, nothing was worthy of Jesus abandoning his lifestyle of patience for hurry in order to meet the needs or the desires of others. Nothing. I mean, if anything would have been worthy for Jesus to, to go into a state of hurry and to, to just ignore everyone and get to where he needed to go, it surely would have been to heal a dying 12-year-old girl of this Jewish synagogue ruler, right? If anything would have been worthy. But it wasn't. Because nothing is wor- was worthy of Jesus abandoning his lifestyle of patience for hurry in order to meet the needs or the desires of others. Because love is always patient. Love is always slow. Jesus chose patience over impatience. Jesus chose hurry over love time and time again. So this morning, I wanna ask you a question. I wanna ask you What are some of your things? The things like Jairus' daughter that, that somehow get in the way of us living the life of Jesus, of choosing patience over impatience, of choosing love over hurry. Things that make us say, yeah, yeah, Jesus, like I hate this hurry stuff. I want to live like you. I want to love and be patient, but what are those things? The things that repeatedly get in the way Is it a job? Is it a spouse? Is it a friend, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, a family member? Is it a calendar so jam-packed that you're filled with anxiety every time that you look at it? Is it an escapist behavior that you turn to to ignore the pain and the exhaustion that you feel? Or is it a really good thing? As I was doing this work in my own life this week, I realized, like, my, my job, my job's like a good thing. But sometimes it gets in the way of me choosing the life of Jesus, of choosing patience over impatience, of choosing love over hurry. What are some of the things for you? We're gonna give you a minute or two to actually reflect and to respond this morning. So if you have a a, a notebook and a a pen, that's great. You have it out already. If you you don't grab it or if you don't have any of that, grab your phone and and pull out your notes, whatever it is. We're gonna take a minute or two and I wanna give you all a little bit of time to just reflect and respond this morning to begin to write out a list of the things that get in the way of us choosing the life of Jesus, of choosing patience over impatience, of choosing love over hurry. And we're going to give you a minute or two. I just want you to write just all the things that come to mind. And as you're writing those things, as you're typing those things, if anything jumps out, like, man, that's a lot. Like, I'm choosing this thing. This thing makes me choose those things a lot. I want you to just highlight it, circle it, whatever it is. But we're just going to spend some time just writing out a list of things that get in the way. And before we do that, I want you to hear this. This time is not about you writing out all the ways that you mess up all the time. This time is not about you walking out of here this morning feeling full of guilt and full of shame. No, God wants to meet you here this morning. All of these things that you're writing, God has created and and God wants to come alongside you to help heal, restore, empty out, to help you slow down and say, I am more important than these things. We're doing this not to, to feel guilt feel shame. We're, we're doing this so that we can begin to do the work of emptying out our lives, so that we can live life with Jesus at one pace, slow, with one posture, patience. So we're going to move into that time. I want to give you a minute or two to begin to write the things that get in the way of us choosing the life of Jesus, of choosing patience over impatience and love over hurry. Let's reflect and respond now. want to pull us back. And uh, that list, there's nothing for you to do with that this morning. That's for you. No homework. If you want to bring it back next week, Torrin's going to talk about some stuff we're going to be doing next week this might be helpful for, but there's nothing to do with that list except acknowledge that it's there. But I want to close this morning with a message of hope. I want to close this morning with good news because The love and the patience that Jesus showed for Jairus' daughter and the bleeding woman Jesus has for each of you, for every single one of us. Like we are hurried, right? Like most of us probably just put a list of things that felt way too long of things that get in the way of us choosing to live life with Jesus, to choose patience over impatience, to choose love over hurry. My guess is after the last few weeks, we, we feel a little messy, We feel a little dirty. We feel hurried. Last week, Torrin affectionately referred to some of our lives as a steaming hot pot of manure. But just like Torrin shared last week, I want this week to share good news, to share the hope that is in Jesus. You see, when Jesus healed Jairus' daughter and this bleeding woman in the same grouping of healings, Jesus was making a statement about himself. In Jesus' day, in Jesus' time, in Jesus' life, there were certain health regulations that were in place. There wasn't running water, there wasn't soap, there wasn't vaccines, there wasn't these things that helped maintain public health. And so other measures needed to be taken. You see, there were certain sources of pollution, certain sources that caused rapid infection that were avoided in Jesus day and there were two sources of pollution that were forbidden avoided at all cost by the general public if possible can you guess what they were a corpse and a woman with internal bleeding like no one touches a corpse no one touches a woman with internal bleeding Jesus touches Jesus commits this double pollution in a way saying that, that no, because nothing is too messy for Jesus. Nothing is too dirty for Jesus. He wants to come in to touch, to get in the mess, to heal and to restore. Nothing is too messy. Nothing is too dirty. Even our hurried lives. Church, I want you to know this morning that Jesus wants to come and touch each one of our lives to heal, to help restore, to help renew, to clean out, to empty out, and to help us slow down so that we may live life like Jesus, so that we may live life at one pace, slow, and so that we may live life with one posture, patient love. Will you pray with me? God, we are filled with gratitude for your son, Jesus this morning, who comes into the mess, who comes into the dirt to, to be patient with us, to undergo with us, to suffer with us, to help us clean, to clean out, to empty out, and to slow down. And so, Holy Spirit, I pray that this morning and in the next few weeks that you would just continue to do that work in us. Help us be uh, captured, help us be enthralled by the lifestyle of Jesus who lived life with one pace, slow, and lived life with one posture, patience. Holy Spirit, help us live that way. Help us slow down. We pray that in the powerful, powerful name of Jesus, who we have our hope and our life in, to you be the power and the kingdom and the glory forever and ever. Amen.